Listener Production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. One of my favourite ways to do that is by running live events, like our annual Leadership Summit. There's nothing quite like being in a room full of inspiring women, hearing their stories and sharing leadership experience. Well, in this series, I'm bringing you the next best thing to being there in the room and sharing the highlights from our 2022 summit. How do you get what you want in the workplace? The right salary, promotion, job title? Well, a great step is to ask for it. But that can be a daunting experience. And often, the fear of the conversation going wrong can stop you asking in the first place. In this episode, you'll hear from three fantastic women who have refined the art of asking for what you want through their impressive careers and, admittedly, through making mistakes. First is Louise Adler, the incoming director of Adelaide Writers Week. She has a wicked way of articulating how far we've progressed and just how far we have to go. Here's Louise now. So I want to take you back to the dark ages, if you don't mind, just for a minute. The 1960s, long before uh, any of you were born, and a Commonwealth paper, which Elizabeth Proust actually shared with me. It's a paper that was written on the question of women trade commissioners. And the director writes this. It's a question. Women trade commissioners? I suppose I need a rising inflection for that. So the director writes, even after some deliberation, it's difficult to find reasons to support the appointment of women trade commissioners. In countries where publicity media is well-developed, such as North America and England, and where there are no other major drawbacks, such as the Islamic attitude toward women, a relatively young, attractive woman could operate with some effectiveness in a subordinate capacity as she would probably be the only woman assistant trade commissioner in the whole area, as other countries employ women in this capacity hardly at all, she would attract a measure of interest and publicity. If we had an important trade in women's clothing and accessories, a woman might promote this more effectively than a man. But even conceding these points, such an appointee would not stay young and attractive forever, and later on could well become a problem. It's much easier to find difficulties, some of which spring to mind, and there are, um, I think, 12 difficulties, and I'm only going to give you a couple of them. So the difficulties that spring to mind for the director on the question of women trade commissioners. Women are not employed except to an extremely minor degree as career trade commissioners in any known service. It is difficult to visualise them as trade commissioners, firstly because they could not mix freely as businessmen do, because most men's clubs, for instance, don't allow women members. Uh, Relationships with businessmen would tend to be somewhat formal and guarded on both sides. This would make it more difficult for a woman to obtain information. It's extremely doubtful if a woman could, year after a year, under a variety of conditions, stand the fairly severe strains and stresses, mentally and physically, which are part of the life of a trade commissioner. A man normally has his household run efficiently by his wife, who also looks after much of the entertaining. A woman trade commissioner would have all this on top of her normal work. 
if we engage single graduates as trainees, most of them would probably marry within five years, and so on and so on. The final point being, a woman would take the place of a man and preclude us from giving practical experience to a male officer. She could marry at any time and be lost to us. She could not be regarded as a long-term investment in the same sense as a man. And I'm sorry, I forgot my favourite one, which is a spinster lady can, and very often does, turn into something of a battle axe with the passing years. <laughs> but a man usually mellows. Well, Battle Axe 101 is here to celebrate with... So, as a uh, short battle axe, let me modify it. As a second wave feminist, I thought we were going to improve the status of women. It's true at the most general level we did. There are now institutionalised processes for women to complain about sexual discrimination. Young women today believe they have rights and they assume a sense of equality. It's inspiring that misogyny and sexual abuse are being made public, and I want to acknowledge brave victim survivors like Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and Saxon Mullins, to name but a few. But I also despair that whether it's in the corridors of Parliament House, the C-suites, church groups, schools or football clubs, sexism is still alive and well. It's brushed under the carpet and goes unchallenged all too often. The word feminism seems to me to be as distasteful and dangerous a category as it's ever been. And nearly a century ago, Rebecca West said, I find that people call me a feminist whenever I express sentiments that differentiate me from a doormat. I'm sure that nothing much has changed. So today of all days, it's worth remembering, and a couple of, they're jokes, they're just jokes, that when God made man, and I'm sorry to the men in the audience who I'm sure are good blokes, that when God made man, he stepped back, looked and said, I can do better than that. <laughs> so you are here because you care, and for that, we're really appreciative. We know that equality is an issue for all of humanity. It isn't simply a question that should concern women. And I always tell young women at events like this today that this is not about equality because women who seek to be equal with men lack ambition. And if I can send you away with one, you know, bomb or aphorism, it would be that women who seek to be equal lack ambition. So today I want to talk a little bit about women and leadership and tell you a few stories about my own working life because I think if we don't have women in those places of power, the question of pay is irrelevant in my humble opinion. So I want you to go away feeling a little more empowered. So my remarks today are a response to working in a variety of content industries. They're also a response to the disturbing sexual politics we're seeing in our general community, in the corporate sector, in the legal fraternity, and most obviously in the past year in the corridors of power and powerlessness that I think are called Parliament House. And the fact, for example, that the Liberal Party is still resisting quotas is indicative of how far we still have to go. We know that women leaders make a difference, not because all women leaders are feminists, because they show other women that it can be done. That's why it's really important. So my own background has given me experience at the academy, public institutions like the ABC, the corporate world, and most particularly in the longest period in the book industry. So my reflections here on the question of agency, of using your power, whether it's for a promotion, whether it's for recognition, whether it's for a pay rise, are based on observations about leaders and leaders who've had a transformational effect on those they lead and the leaders that have blocked progress. So just a couple of distinctions. When I'm talking about leaders, I'm not talking about managers. Managers are vital, but they're a distinctive species. The good manager, as we know, makes a workplace hum, ensures that the systems and structures are there to ensure that people can get on with their work. But leadership is about the ability to inspire the members of a team to believe in the value and purpose of our own work. 
It's true that women leaders face some distinct issues. People don't like this line, but I think it's an important one. It was Lily Tomlin who once said that the trouble with the rat race is that even if the woman wins, she's still a rat. Or to use Amy Ramika's fabulous phrase, a crumb maiden. I think they perfectly describe some of these women. But in the conventional workplace, the successful man is considered aggressive, but the woman is considered pushy. The man is good on details, the woman is a fussbot. The manager loses his temper because he's so involved with his job, but she's bitchy. The man follows through, but the woman never gives up. He makes judgments, she shows her prejudice. He's a perfectionist, she's impossible to please. And my own favourite one is, he's a people person, but she slept her way to the top. I learnt more from poor leaders than I did from inspirational leaders in my career. The worst leader I knew was unable to make a decision, was intellectually lazy, was a chronic butt passer, passive and unethical. His leadership style might be summarised as a resistance to taking action, to making a judgment, and in many instances, a plethora of meetings masqueraded as consultation, which blocked the obvious needs for change. The best leader I encountered, and he actually happened to be a bloke, would spend the first hour every day outside of his office, walking around and talking to staff. No one felt that they were being asked to account for themselves, but rather this walk around offered staff the opportunity to catch up informally with the CEO. It was an effective and modest and quiet strategy that confirmed in a simple way that the work all of us were engaged in mattered. I should point out that my business, the publishing business, is still often a gentleman's game. Women do most of the work. Publishing is a women's business, often secret women's business, mostly underpaid and mostly unacknowledged. Editors are handmaidens to the creativity of others. They clean up after their authors, add the commas, check the text for proofreading errors. Literally, editors do the housework. There are few male editors because men tend not to imagine themselves to be handmaidens, surprisingly. Publicity is another women's task, you'll know this. Who else wants to book the flights, the hotels, the taxis, handle the luggage and ensure a smooth, trouble-free experience for the author? I've yet to encounter a bloke who approached to write a book paused for even one moment to admit that he was not sure that he had anything worthwhile to say. <laughs> Women writers, though, are chronically full of doubt and hesitation. They need encouragement, and they often recommend someone they think could do a far better job. Male writers need affirmation. They want me to tell them their writing is good, but they really weren't in any doubt anyway. They just like hearing you tell them that their writing is good. In my career, I've learnt more from my mistakes than my successes, and there are too many mistakes to list here. But perhaps just one example will be instructive. And I think those of you from Melbourne and who are invested or committed to sport will particularly enjoy this anecdote. Many years ago, I was asked to fill in on 3AW's Drive Time program, one of the highest rating programs in Melbourne at the time. Now, one of my strengths is that I have courage. Some friends would say that that courage is often misplaced. Friends tell you the truth if they're real friends. Anyway, my courage or impulsiveness led me to say yes, when more cautious or wise women would say, a really lovely idea, but thank you, no thank you. So I accepted the offer to fill in for three weeks on commercial radio, having had no radio experience whatsoever. I blame Steve Price for this. The high point or low point of the experience came on a Friday night at 5.30 in the evening. Wedged into the studio were Max Walker, Sam Newman and Dr Turf, and it was time to talk sport, in particular the football matches on that weekend. Presenters on 3AW were given a lot of support. 
Studio producers will steer the presenter through the show. Everything is typed up on the screen for you. And there are also instructions coming through your headphones. And if you're an amateur learning the ropes, all you need to do is read the screen and pretend you aren't reading. So my task was to rattle through the AFL teams and sit back and allow the blokes to air their opinions about who would win where. When the words Cardinia Park came up on my screen, I thought, hmm, these producers aren't rocket scientists. Obviously, they can't even spell. So I breezily, arrogant as I was, so I breezily asked Sam Newman, Max Walker and Dr Turf who was going to win at Gardenia Park. <laughs> well, they thought that was hysterical, that I was suggesting wittily something about the lack of manliness among Geelong players. The evening couldn't go fast enough from my point of view. I was mortified by my ignorance and arrogance and my husband, we never fail to w drive down the coast without him pointing out the great big board that says, he says, what does that say, Louise? Is that Gardenia Park up there? Anyway, the experience was extremely embarrassing. They thought it was hilarious. They thought I was being homophobic, which I wasn't. I was just an ignoramus. So what are the lessons I took away from that? Don't talk about the subjects on which you're ignorant. Do your homework. Know what you're talking about. Arm yourself, whether you're going for a job or you're asking for a pay rise, you have to know the environment, you have to have done the work before you get there. And I think fundamentally is you've got to trust your colleagues. I know that leadership can be lonely and being a woman in a workplace that's not women friendly or family friendly is very difficult. So you need to find peers with whom you can discuss the challenges you confront. But you also need to find a mentor. You need to find people who have had more experience and wisdom than you, people you can trust. Those mentors are critical and they can provide perspective and strategies and contacts and a place to reflect on your own doubts and insecurity. They will certainly coach you in the tactics required to get the promotion, the pay rise and the recognition you deserve. In the final analysis, though, I think that the whole the issues that we confront, and they're really about owning your power, I think is the way it would be described now. I would say them about being a leader in whatever workplace you find yourself in and whatever context you find yourself in. I think it has everything to do with authenticity. You have to de develop a style that's authentic to you. Those who you seek to lead will remain unconvinced if you are not authentic for yourself. I think that requires self-knowledge, willingness to reflect on your weaknesses, which I obviously didn't at 3AW, the humility to gather around yourself the very best people whose skills complement your own and the generosity to delight in their success. So today is International Women's Day and I want to end with a little story that I hope you will keep in mind whenever you're about to enter a hostile environment. The Bible tells us that the differences between men and women are God-given. When God was handing out the special talents, it came to the capacity to stand up and pee at the same time. Of course, man put up his hand and said, gee, that's impressive, I'll take that. So God turned to woman and said, well, I'm sorry, but all I have left is multiple orgasms. I wish you, <laughs> I wish you a very happy International Women's Day. Thank you. What a way to end a speech. And that's why Louise Adler is a publishing icon. Next up, we have experienced non-executive director and chair of Australian Payments Plus, Catherine Brenner, who brings some really practical advice on how to ask for that pay rise. Here she is now. I am the mother of three daughters who seem to be pretty good for asking for what they want and sometimes getting it. And as I was reflecting on how successfully my daughter had made the case on Saturday for something that she wanted to do and to take the car, I realised that she had chosen the timing of her ask really thoughtfully. 
that she'd skillfully woven in the things that are important to us that we are encouraging her to do. She offered clear parameters and she was confident, but not too cocky or aggressive. And she snookered me, but it got me thinking, something seems to happen between 17 and growing up. Perhaps we become more unsure of ourselves or in trying to shape and fit into the world of work, we've lost some of that confidence. So what are the facts? There is a pay gap between men and women. Women are just as likely to ask for a pay rise as men, but are less likely to get it. When comparing the same industries with the same jobs and exactly the same levels of education and training, women earn 92 cents on average for every dollar that a man earns. And men are much more likely to receive a promotion without asking for it than women, to the tune of a more than 30% more likely. And we all know that usually with promotion comes more pay and benefits. So let's change this. And yes, it's probably, or in fact, undoubtedly on the tip of many of your tongues that it's organisations that need to do a better job of looking at reward and promotions to ensure that there's no conscious or unconscious gender gap or other unconscious or conscious biases. And I can tell you firsthand that organisations that do that and do it seriously make a, a huge difference. But we all know it's not just about pay and promotion. It's about so many other things as well. It's about how, when and where we work. Now I've been reminded that this is a practical session and I understand that you all want to walk away with some things for your game plan on for not just asking but for getting what you want. So let's give it a whirl. What have I learned personally as to what works and what have I seen work well? Prepare, ask specifically and clearly, practice, follow up and play the long game as well. So first, prepare. If at work you are proposing that you launch a new product or enter a different market, approach a new client, you would probably prepare a business case or at least make the suggestion with a clear rationale. You'd be structuring your argument in a way that speaks to the business reason, the customer need, but you need to do it for yourself. I confess that I usually find it easier to do this sort of preparation as if it's for someone else, not for me. And I've even been known to use a fake name when I'm doing that work. Get some pertinent facts and figures and where relevant, work them in. Write the business case down, pick up a pen, put it to paper, put your fingers to the keypad, write it down and iterate. But don't talk yourself out of things as part of this process. And do not, do not. Give a list of reasons as to why you may not deserve, why you may not be ready for, why the business may not be able to give you what you want. And also work out a really good time for the conversation to happen and schedule a specific interaction. Leaving it for the last minute, you know, when there's only say a few minutes left at the end of a meeting or a catch up is not ideal. When I was a young lawyer, I saw that my charge out rate had increased quite significantly. I asked my main partner and he told me that it reflected the quality of my work. I sat back assuming that it would eventually make its way into a pay increase, but it didn't. I happened to receive a call from a headhunter 
And I asked them what the salaries were elsewhere for others that were doing my type of work and at my charge out rate. And I was being paid a lot less than what the numbers that they gave me. So armed with this information, with a number of data points, fueled by the injustice and being pretty broke, I made the case to my main partner. And then following some really good coaching from him, and he actually came along as well, I was able to successfully take it to the managing partner and my pay was increased. So that takes me to the second point. Ask specifically and clearly. Sometimes, just sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, we crowd our rationale and our ask with a whole lot of words. Whether to justify us asking because we're embarrassed or trying to soften the ask, or we're just thinking, um, talking as we think. There are lots of reasons, but we need to be very specific and very clear. Just last week, I was talking with the CEO of a business that I'm on the board of, and they mentioned that one of their senior team had asked for some things um, with respect to their package and what they're able to do and what they're being rewarded with. And he said that he'd said yes to them all. I happened to bump into that senior team member later in the day in the lift. And I said to them that the CEO had just been raving about how terrific they were. She looked surprised. And I inquired as to why. And she said, I don't get it. He tells me that I'm terrific. I went to him to ask for a few things that I thought were quite reasonable. He said yes to one and then acted like he'd given me the world. So I inquired of her what she'd actually asked for. And I circled back to the CEO and he was genuinely shocked that she felt that way. It turned out he hadn't actually heard what she'd asked for and he thought that one of the things that he had heard, she already had. But he was actually really happy for all of them to be implemented straight away. So I guess the moral there is be clear. Articulate what it is that you would like with a crisp, clear ask and a sound business rationale. The third practical tip is to practice. Say it out loud, not just in your head. I can recall taking a toddler in the bath through why I should be promoted. <laughs> Get a trusted confidant to role play it with you. I actually do it all the time and it really works. I'd also think about some of the pushbacks that you might receive and craft calm, clear and strong responses and practice those as well. I find that the preparation and the practice help enormously in getting the tone right so that you come across as calmly mature and focused on the business and less likely to have said something or in a way that has you lying awake at night at 2am berating yourself and we've all been there. A good tip shared by a dear friend is to pop in some AirPods and go for a walk while practicing these conversations out loud. It just looks like you're on a really important work phone call. <laughs> Fourth, follow-up. If there's a response to say review, let's talk about this in a few months time or now's the, not the right time, diarize it to follow up say in two to three months and look for specific things that you can follow up tangibly. Finally, we've been talking about specific big ask occasions. But it's also really important to lay the groundwork for the next big ask and generally. In my early days as a leader, I was surprised by how often the men would give me little updates and make comments in the lift or as they walked by, dropping a remark in an email 
or sending a snippet in a message. It gave me pause to realise that women, like I so often did, were beavering away, heads down, and would come to me with a beautifully polished, finished product, effectively tied up with a bow, and that they were not having the same interactions. The men who did a lot of these seemingly throwaway lines along the way, I've been looking at the competitors for X, and did you know that Y is really big in South America? Go figure, or the pricing seems really weird in the US, why do you think that is? Or sending me a text, FYI, X's CEO has just joined the Waratahs board. What they were doing was having more occasions where they were showing that they were keen, that they were working hard, that they were thoughtful and across the detail. It also had the effect that if they were off track, it was an incredibly simple but effective course correction. I could say, oh, look, I don't think South America's relevant to them. Let's focus more on the Asian opportunities or, which you know, unfortunately happens all too often. Oh, I was speaking with a client and I've been meaning to tell you, let's not focus on the international bit. Let's focus on the domestic East Coast. So I'd pause and think about how you can do the same. I know a few people for whom these more casual, short, but substantive interactions, particularly when working remotely, don't come naturally. So they put little reminders in their diary to make them happen. So just remember, prepare, ask specifically and clearly, practice, follow up, and play the long game as well. You are exceptional, talented, hardworking women. Channel your inner 17 year old and use your many talents and skills to get what you want, but more importantly, what you deserve. Helen here again. To recap, Catherine's five steps are prepare, ask specifically and clearly, practice, follow up and play the long game. These are great tips. We've just heard two excellent presentations from Louise Adler and Catherine Brenner. Next is Sam Mostyn, the President of Chief Executive Women, who takes a slightly different approach Sam talks not just about being an equal in the workplace, but being the first woman in a workplace and how you can make changes in that environment once you're in. And make sure you listen out for the Q&A after Sam's speech. But for now, over to Sam. Now, last week, I had a great, great pleasure. I had the honour of launching the book of one of my heroes and someone who I've learnt from and who I continue to learn from, Wendy McCarthy. Wendy will maybe known to many of you. If you're slightly older, she'll be known to you. If you're younger, I'd tell you to go and buy the book, read about a woman who at 80 has just written her second memoir and shares the story of what it means to find your voice as a woman in this country and get what you want to ask for. It's a brilliant memoir. I think it's one of the best ones of its kind and Wendy is one of the most generous women who has made herself available to all women and a lot of men to help guide them in their in their careers and their lives. And I thought what I'd do is just start with, with a little reminder about where we all start and that 
we don't start out confident and able to get what we want. Um, we're all part of a big backstory. And so Wendy would now be known as one of the most successful advocates for feminism, for things that we take for granted, free contraception, the right to an abortion, um, the, she, the things she fought for through the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s, um, and now as an 80-year-old woman reflecting on that life. You know, you, it's easy to forget that she started out as a young woman, as a teacher, as a mother, as a community member before she stepped into um, the women's electoral lobby to start to ask for things for women across this country. And so I thought I'd just share with you an anecdote that she shares in the book. It's a very funny book. Um, and she says during this time when she was finding her voice about how she was going to, to get the things she needed for women, she says, during that time, I had my first radio interview. It seems like radio has a bit of a theme today. Um, and it was with Paul Lynch on 2UE. It was a talk back on a Sunday evening. As ever, I remember the event by what I wore. She always looks fabulous. I wore a green woolen shirt and a long black skirt. It was my confident good luck look for that year. I spent hours getting ready to make sure I looked good. Yes, I know it was radio, but I had to look good to feel good, and you never know who will see you. Despite this preparation, I had to stop the car and throw up from nerves. Then I stopped at a garage and bought some chewing gum in case I smelt of vomit. I got there pretending I was cool, calm and collected. She goes on to say, I always tell this story because it's important for people to know this does not happen naturally. No one does this naturally. These performance skills are learnt along the way. You learn them first by agreeing to take the risk. And Wendy, as a mentor of mine, has been telling me from the time I was a young woman to take the risk, to say yes, and to then listen and learn to my instinct, deal with the, the nerves. And in her case, as she said, looking good made her feel good, gave her confidence and set her on her road. But she would still be throwing up on the way to the interview until she got to the point where she was self-confident enough to take on what became the most incredible career of change and, and one of the great feminists of our time. So I highly recommend this. It could be your Bible of the how-to um, if you're interested in a woman who, who has seen it all and had to fight the biggest fights on behalf of all of us. So I think... Um, I think her life is an exemplar for me of women finding their voice. It doesn't just happen. And for me, it wasn't always easy. As you've heard from our other speakers, we've all had our journey um, from when we were young women and the things that we encountered, and even things we've encountered as, as slightly older women. My own reflections um, take a various courses. I was going to cite some things, but they've been covered a bit by the others already, so I'm not going to um, go over them. So I thought I'd just share a couple of things about what it's like to be entering a world where you are the only woman or the first woman or someone who is, is trying to be part of something you believe you have the right to be part of. And um, Louise, it takes me to AFL. So in 2005, exactly 2004, um, a group of women around the country received a call from a headhunter asking us if we would consider putting our names in the ring to be the first woman commissioner at the Australian Football League. There'd never been a woman involved on the board of the AFL. They rang 10 women around the country who had specific skills and they wanted to know whether we would go through a process and that one of us would be lucky enough to end up on the commission. It was a long process. There were three or four rounds of interviews. None of us quite knew who the other women were. Um, and we all, I think, got really interested in doing that job, um, more so than we actually anticipated. Um, and the thing I learned about going into that process, I learned from my dad actually, because I said, it's ridiculous. I've never played the game. I like the game. I know nothing about the governance of the game. Why me? 
And he said, why not you? If they want a woman, make sure you give yourself the best shot to say why it shouldn't be you. Tell them what you're good at. Show them that you are the perfect candidate and get enthusiastic about it. And what's the worst thing that can happen? You don't get it, but what an experience. You'll meet incredible people, you'll test yourself, um, and you never know where this ends up. And on the upside, if you get it, what an extraordinary journey you'll be on. I was the very lucky last woman standing at the end of that process, and I was appointed to the commission in 2005 as the first woman to hold that role. I did know about Cadinia Park. I did know about... No, 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 I, I'm telling the story for a reason, which is, well, apart from the fact that there is a reason why there's an AFLW league today, and it starts with that decision to have women in governance. It's the only way that a group of men could understand that women wanted to play football, not just be football wives and girlfriends or go as fans. And so things start when you break barriers. And in this case, it was thrilling to be involved in that, those early days. But I wanted to tell you a quick story about the last interview. It was coming down to, I knew there were two of us left. We had to have a meeting with four um, commissioners and presidents of clubs. Um, Eddie Maguire was one of those presidents. Um, all the men were very tall former ruckmen. If you don't know the game, they're the very tall guys that jump in the centre to tap the ball at the beginning of the game. They are very tall. I'm tall, but I'm not as tall as them. And so I thought before going to the interview, I had to give myself the best chance for them to think about me as their equal um, and how would I do that? And I thought, I'm going to enter that room when they meet me for the first time and look them in the eye. So I had the biggest, <laughs> I had heels on that I have never worn since with a pair of trousers that were long enough to cover the fact that I had these enormous heels on. And so I was well over six foot as I walked into that room, tried not to totter in and held their gaze, put my hand out and shook their hands and looked them in the eye before sitting down. Now that's a terrible thing to admit when it's about a natural advantage I've got because of genetics and then playing with it. But I wanted that job in the end and I was trying to back myself in. And I think there are just times in life where you have to understand what are, the, what are the assumptions being made about you when you're trying to break barriers. And for those men, all very tall footy men who thought women should be girls, uh, girlfriends and wives and petite and pretty, I had to step in there and be a commissioner. And so that's what I did. I played that role. And I was very fortunate to, to be appointed. Interestingly enough, the second woman appointed to the commission uh, two years later, because I said my, my appointment was conditional on the appointment of the next commissioner also being a woman, because there was no, um, absolutely no um, pride in being the only woman on that commission. I'm happy to be the first, but not the only. Um, the second woman appointed was the woman that I just nudged out a bit to get there, and that's Linda Desso, who's now the governor of Victoria. Linda is about five foot two. <laughs> and we've often joked about the fact that <laughs> I had sauntered in with my big stonking heels um, and, and sort of looked at them. And it, it wasn't the only thing that happened and it wasn't the only thing that mattered, but you know, I'd played my card. And, um, and interestingly, so she had always wanted to be that commissioner. Interestingly, when she was appointed governor of Victoria, she rang me and she said, you know, there are only two things I ever wanted to be first at in Victoria, the first woman commissioner and the first governor. And she said, so I look at you and I think I win. So she, she, she got the governorship. Um, and, we, and that just brings me to another lesson. When we were on the commission together, before a third and fourth women arrived, we agreed with each other behind the scenes how we would behave in the meetings because we didn't want to be an adornment to the meetings. We didn't want to just deal with women's issues. We wanted to deal with football issues and then be available to help the men through some difficult issues that did involve women's perspectives. But we didn't want to look like a block 
and be the two women at the table always fighting for women. So we would agree ahead of meetings, we'd look at the agendas, we'd prepare ourselves, and we would choose the things that we would disagree on in the meeting so that we were not a block and we would side with a man, not on issues that went to conscience or went to women's roles, but on the laws of the game, on issues that were about football. Um, and I have to tell you, just that planning to send a message to the men that all women are just not the same, that we're just like the men, we have a different set of views, different opinions, it mattered. But it meant we had to prepare for that quite often. Again, it's, these are little tricks that I think you, you learn to do so that you become um, accepted in worlds that have not accepted women. And sometimes it takes a little bit of that, um, that preparation. Um, both Catherine and Louise have mentioned the things I was going to speak about, about practising, about finding other women that you can, you can ring and say, I've got a job interview. I've got a difficult board matter. Can I run it through with you? Can I sit? Can we play act? Um, I do that a lot. And there are, are there, you'd be surprised to know how many very senior women in this country will speak to one another and say, I'm great once I'm in the board, but if I'm doing an interview and being asked to speak about myself, I go to pieces. How can I do it? So we do a lot of practising. We actually encourage our, our fellow peers to learn how to say great things about themselves and not feel awkward and not feel like they're, they're self-interested, but actually they've got the right to say these things. So even at very senior levels, we are practising still. So these things, these tips and techniques just don't go away. One of the things my daughter taught me, she's 22, she's an actor. She taught me that one of the best things you can do is something that actors use all the time. And it's a technique that takes you from no but to yes and. And she said, Mum, if you really want to get change, you've got to stop saying, when, someone, when, a, when a bloke says something you don't agree with, don't say yeah, no, but. Try every time on any issue to say yes and, and then say what you want to say. Don't put the block up, don't say no, don't say but. And I've practised this now for the last few years. She's become my mentor on how to keep a conversation flowing, how to not put the hand up to someone who's saying what they believe, generally a man in this situation, but it works for everyone. And I now say, yes, that's interesting. And I'd like to add to that. So it's additive, it's respectful, and generally I get my way <laughs> because I've paid respect to the person proposing an idea that I might not agree with. Um, it works very well in board meetings where you want the conversation to continue um, or in executive meetings or team meetings where you might be, you've got a difficult person, you want to diffuse that but get your voice heard. And that came from my, my daughter when she was 20 teaching me the great acting technique. I had an issue with um, a marvellous chief executive, I can't name him, um, but he was one of my best bosses. Um, I loved working for him. After two years of working for him, he, um, we were doing my performance review, um, we were doing salary review, and I sat down and I looked after, um, I looked after a big portfolio of issues around the company. And he, he said, you had a great year, and I know you don't do this for the money. I thought, I'm a senior executive in a large organisation doing a good job and his opening remarks were, I know you don't do this for the money. And in that moment, I just had to react. And I said, actually, can we stop right here? I do this for the money. <laughs> I love my job. I back myself in, but I do this for the money. You cannot sit there and say to a senior executive, a woman senior executive, I know you don't do it for the money. You don't know anything about my circumstances. He didn't know that I was the primary income earner. He didn't know that two other women on the team were primary income earners with husbands that were taking a lot of the care duties with their children. He'd made an assumption, the, the implicit bias in what he said was all about, you just do this for a doddle. You've got a husband somewhere, you've got um, a life somewhere, but this is something you're doing because you love it. So money isn't the thing. And I say to every woman I come across, 
the money does matter. Advocating for your money, standing up for yourself, believing in what you are you're doing and how much it should be valued by the people who are judging you and supporting you, it matters. And I found just saying, actually, I won't say his name, it matters, the money matters. And he, he corrected, adjusted, and he, did, he said to me subsequently, he has never used that line again um, because it was called in the moment. The last thing I just want to say to you is, you know, we can talk in the panel about the tips and tricks and things about a voice, but I want to leave you with a thought and it, it jumps off when Wendy McCarthy leaves me in what she went through in her 80 years and continuing. At Chief Executive Women, we used to be an organisation that was all about women supporting other women. We still do that, but we didn't ever have a voice about the economy and about what really matters to women. We were a bit quiet about that, worried, I think, that we, were, we would become an advocacy organisation instead of one that would support our women leaders, but we realised we could do both. And so what you've seen is us changing the conversation in the last year and meeting the moment post-COVID. So we are taking up the big issues to government at the moment around early childhood education and care, about paid parental leave, about closing the gender pay gaps, about safe workplaces for all, about gender-based um, cabinets. And the reason we are doing this is that we now believe that, uh, that women's voices, women leaders' voices have got to meet the moment and play in the economic future of the country. And so what we've done is we've changed the language from being women's issues to primary economic issues for this country, and we're making it retail politics. We're completely nonpartisan. We're very concerned not to be backing any party in particular, but you'll hear us now talk about the fact that early childhood education and care is a cost of living issue that's making families poor. Doesn't matter where you sit in the income um, framework, it's making us all poor. It makes families poor financially. It makes families poor when women choose to have to stay at home instead of actually going to work if they want. So we're advocating for free early education and care over the next 10 years to free everyone back into workforces and have great lives and great communities and great families again. But we will hear us using the retail politics language rather than talking about feminism or women's issues. We're going to go straight for what we think will make a better country. And I think there's a trick in that about how we ask for things. It's what Wendy was doing. It's what, the, what all of us on the panel are doing. We have got to put these issues into the national discourse in the language that the community understands, that the media understands. And then I want you all to feel confident that you can use the data and this call for equality to help us actually make a much better country and deal with the structural disadvantages that women face and men who want to do more caring and be better parents are facing right across the country. And so my plea to all of you, in addition to um, working on your own tactics and techniques for getting what you want, is to help all of us get what we need for the country, making sure that women are fully empowered, able to work where they want, earn what they want, that children at the heart and the care for children is dealt with appropriately through the right early education system, and that we actually think about a post-pandemic world that's better than the, than the world we had going into it. Thanks so much. We've got space for a couple of questions. Perfect. Thank you for three phenomenal presentations. Um, my question speaks to the theme of the session, how to ask for what you want. An extrapolation of that is knowing what you want and furthermore um, speaks to that art of possibility, even knowing what's possible to want. So um, my question to you all is what has elevated your aspirations in your journey? What was it that perhaps inspired you or even helped you to know what was possible? Thank you. Um, it's, it's a great question and it's always hard to give you the actual personal at that moment. I think for me... Um, I'm the oldest of four daughters. My father was in the army. We moved a lot. We were encouraged to say yes a lot. And I, I just think the act of saying yes 
without having fear opens doors that then lead to the the very interesting worlds, particularly that women have. We don't have linear lives. We tend to take the thing we get and make something really great of it. And I, the things I've done in my life have never been planned. They weren't about some moment that I suddenly realised that was going to be the course I'd take. They were about lots of yeses and lots of testing myself and then checking whether I was good enough for those moments and adjusting if I wasn't. But I think the act of just saying yes and putting yourself in a position to be more creative and to be broader, even if it terrifies you, is um, it, it's that thing about you don't have to know everything about the thing you're being asked to say yes. If it feels right, if it's something you're keen to do, say yes. And can I just add to that that I think it is um, it's, you go with fear. I think it's, you know, under accept that you're going to feel fearful, have some confidence in your capacity to learn. I'm I just my path has been just completely fortuitous. I've been really lucky to be in the places where opportunities have arisen, um, but I've actually had to have the courage to say yes, make mistakes as I elaborated and could go on for another hour about, um, but actually the kind of fear that propels you. But I think the one of the messages, and I think people, I don't know whether people want to hear this these days, is that you have to do the work. Have the courage, know where you're going and you may, you know, the route may be circuitous, but you actually have to do the work and preparing and to thinking about it. And then to say, okay, I can take this leap. I don't need to know everything about this job. It will come to me. You know, I will figure this out. I've got enough confidence to think I can figure this out. And the reason I think the debate we're having at the moment on early childhood education and care it's not that it should apply to every woman because not every woman wants to have a family. And, but what it does is it says that the predominant culture that says if you choose that path, you have to start saying no because your primary job is a carer or you can't afford the childcare or your salary will just cover that despite the fact you might be with someone who has a big salary. It comes back almost as a woman's duty to pay for the care. And we would like to remove that barrier that stops women having the full autonomy to say, I can keep going, I can have a great career, I can have a great family, I can be part of community, and I don't have to face this moment where the no starts to kick in and lose that sense of um, wonderment and excitement with being part of, you know, investing in your career and having children and family if that's what you want. But that, that's depressed. Aren't you depressed that, you know, from Wendy McCarthy and my generation, I'm younger than Wendy, but, you know, our success, a succession of generations, we have been discussing the kind of question of domestic labour, childcare for what, since the 1970s, and you're having to make the case, brilliantly making the case now again. I'm sorry to be a downer in a you know, setting like this, but it feels to me, how long have we been having this discussion? You know, wh where are the constraints? We are, it's clear what the constraints are on people, women leading full lives. Yeah, I'm excited because of the kind of women in this room. So you can see the enthusiasm and your, your excitement and your energy. So we know we can get it done this time, I think. I think there's a national conversation we're in. Um, but I also think COVID gave us everything we needed to change the debate. In the middle of COVID, hundreds of billions of dollars being spent by governments knowing how to fix a problem. It's a much smaller amount of money that needs to be spent on the early childcare system. Um, and it has a much better payback over time. And we know governments can do it, so they've shown us that. They also gave women across the country three months of free childcare. And so women got a taste, families got a taste. And I reckon around, around um, kitchen tables and dining, you know, sitting around watching telly at night, remembering what it was like when childcare wasn't the issue it was and wasn't expensive and difficult. If we could get back to that, it will release something. So I, we're gonna go with COVID has given us the, 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 the blueprint to get this done. And you all just need to make sure that you ask anyone that wants to lead this country where it sits in the budget 
Where's the investment, the long-term investment in social infrastructure that actually opens up the possibility for women, for men, for families, our communities, and it's better for the economy. It's the single best thing we can do for the economy. Aren't we lucky to have Sam? I think that that argument is just fantastic. Um, At the very practical level, I remember my father saying to me, look, I went to Coffs Harbour High School where most people didn't even finish, go past year 10. And I ended up doing things that I never even envisaged, that I hadn't even heard of. And I think to Sam's point, it's about saying yes. But as my father would say to me, he says, what's the worst that could happen? You can go back and work at Target or work at where all those different jobs I had. What's the worst that can happen? And I think we have to remind ourselves that sometimes. So I'd go for the open door. And just you were talking about that, what do we want and how do we articulate? And we're not quite sure what it is. I think when you're doing the ask at work, not putting those extra words in and polluting it with all the things that are going through your head. Because as bosses, and particularly, and I've had a lot of really great male colleagues who said to me, I really want to do the right thing, but I'm not actually sure what they're asking for. So I think it comes back to the preparation piece as well, being clear and crisp in what you want and not sharing like you would with your friends or your mum or whoever, all the things that are going through your head and your doubts. Be clear in your ask, say yes, and then be really clear and crisp in your ask and make those great political arguments as well. And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. 